Today we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 4, and we'll be covering verses 7 through 12. And so as we begin, let us begin by reading this text this morning. 1 John chapter 4, picking it up in verse 7. There we read this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I don't know how many of you were here in service a little early, about a month ago. But if you were, and I believe it was about a month ago, you had the potential of seeing the light bulb right up there explode into a million pieces about two minutes before the start of service. Any of you here for that? A few? Pretty exciting stuff. It sounded like a gunshot going off. I don't know if I can say something like that in front of people, but that's what it sounded like. But pretty magnificent. Thankfully, Matt or uh, no one else was sitting at the piano because if they were, shards of hot glass would have fallen on their heads, which would have made it even more exciting, although not for the pianist, of course. But it was pretty amazing to see. And, and as it was amazing to see, it was also a, a great visual reminder of the heat that builds up in these light bulbs all around us, hanging above our very heads. I assure you, we're all safe, I'm, I'm sure. It's a reminder of, of the, the light that we see coming from these bulbs. It's not just, just light as itself, but it's the result, of course, of the heat being produced in these types of bulbs. As that electric charge is sent through and as the filament inside is heated up, it lets off that glow, that burn, that then allows us to see and to read and to, to uh, have fellowship with each other. It's a pretty amazing science that takes place in the midst of any of those bulbs, although I must admit that I, I know very little about that science and know even less about LED light bulbs. As I started this analogy with the idea of an LED light bulb only to quickly figure out, well, I have no idea how those, those actually work. So I stuck with the type of light bulb I kind of vaguely understand. But we benefit from the light that these types of bulbs let off on a, daily, uh, on a daily basis, even though we don't fully understand it, we don't fully grasp necessarily the science that is taking place. As we observe the text today in 1 John chapter 4, we come to a similar picture. A picture not of, of actual light, but a picture of the love of God. This love that burns brightly before us. It's a love that oftentimes we become so accustomed to that, that we lose sight of just how majestic it is. We fail to appreciate what is behind that love, what is behind these experiences that we're given as believers. And as we do so, as we lose an appreciation for that, we also lose an understanding of why commands like this command in 1 John is so essential, so vitally important for us to understand as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we return to this familiar command to love one another, we do so to explore, we do so by exploring the ultimate source of the love that John is commanding. As we look at this picture then, we'll understand not just the idea of love, but the ultimate source of love. And as we understand that source and see its standard, we're also reminded 
of what it means to love each other today and why that plays such an essential role in what it means to be a Christian. As we do this then, my prayer is that all of us might once again be awestruck by that glorious light of God that is displayed in his love. And we also might be charged and motivated to properly love one another in our daily lives. With that being said, let me go ahead and begin our time in prayer and we'll begin exploring 1 John 4. Bow your heads in prayer with me if you will. Father in heaven, we thank you for another opportunity to come together today. God, we thank you for the time of fellowship many of us already had with a breakfast in the gym and thank you for the reminder that it is that we are family, that we are a community of believers. Might we take that seriously? Might we see that as a tremendous blessing, a tremendous opportunity to be surrounded by people that love us, people that we're commanded to love? God, we live in a world that is difficult to love. And indeed, even as believers, we at times are very difficult to love. But as we come to the text today, I pray that we might understand, um, perhaps in a new way, the importance of that love. For the first time, Lord, I pray that many of us might rightly acknowledge the glory of the love that you've shown us. Might we be awestruck by the beauty of that love, by the light that it gives off. And as we understand that love, God, might we understand you more, might we understand your son Jesus Christ more, and might we be all the more motivated to love one another daily in light of what's been given to us. As always, God, I pray for those here who do not yet know you, who have not yet experienced your love, God. I pray that you open up their eyes to see the truth of the gospel today for the first time. I pray they might be convicted of their sin. I pray they might repent of their sin today and turn to you knowing that ultimately the love they so desperately desire, the life they so desperately need is found purely in your son, Jesus Christ. Save them today. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we might be motivated today, God. I pray that we might not be distracted by anything around us. But again, might we be completely focused on you. And might we be, as such, devoted disciples to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Well, as we begin looking through this text today, we will see this concept of love really carried out in three ways. We'll see the source of love, that is God. We'll see the historical manifest, manifestation or revelation of that love, which is Jesus, the Son. And ultimately, we'll see the end result of that love as it's put into practice. We begin then with this idea of love's source. We find that source detailed in verses 7 through 8. Follow along with me once more as we read. There, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. As our text picks up today, it picks up in a, a command that should be familiar to every single one of you if you've spent much time at all reading through 1 John. For this seems to be the command that John kind of repeats over and over and over again. If you were with us earlier in our study of 1 John, you saw it pop up in chapter 2 of John. In chapter 2, verse 7, John says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning, the old commandment of the word which you have heard. And it goes on to describe that old commandment being love one another. This is a command that, that John says he's taught these believers already, even before writing 1 John. It's a command that Jesus Christ himself commanded and gave to the apostle John. That command then is passed on by John. And so we see it in 1 John 2, we see it more recently in 1 John chapter 3. You see that in 1 John chapter 3 verse 11, there John says again, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
Again, this language is familiar. Again, John is saying this is nothing new, believer. This is the same command, the same message you've had from the moment you heard me speak. Time and time again, the command from John to believers is love one another. And already in the book of 1 John, we've seen a number of reasons given that, that are to propel us, motivate us in that love. The beginning of 1 John in chapters 1 and 2, the, the reason for loving each other is the reality of the light of God's kingdom, that light in which we currently live. And so John says we love because we are living in the light. Since we know the kingdom of God is characterized by that love, well then, we must love. Somewhat similar, but slightly different way in 1 John chapter 3. John describes this love as being evidence of this internal salvation. Evidence of the fact that we've been reborn. We see that same language brought up in 1 John 4. If we have been reborn, if we've been given this new life, well then the evidence of that is love. And so you love because of the light, you love because of salvation. But it's really not until we get to 1 John 4 that we come to the most foundational reason for this love. And as we read already, the foundational reason for that love is, is not simply the, the practical ramifications of coming to Christ. The foundational reason why we are to love is because of the source of that love. That source being God. John's point here is if we know God, we will love because as he says so powerfully, God himself is love. Now if you've heard this verse before, that is 1 John 4, 8. If you've heard this phrase before, that God is love, it might not sound all that startling. But if we take a step back, I think we all can appreciate just how amazing of a statement this is. I mean, think of how many attributes of God you can find in Scripture. And just run through the many, many attributes of God that we find in, in all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Think of the attributes that stick out most to you as being the most powerful displays of the nature of God. And maybe it's his holiness, maybe it's his omnipotence, maybe it's the fact that he knows all things. As a young Christian, I think growing up in the church, I would have associated God primarily with, with those images of power. And so if I were John and I were writing a description of God, I would say, dearly beloved, God is power. God is might. And I would write these types of words in essence to, to strike a proper fear in the hearts of my readers. For surely that would be the right motivation for obedience, would it not? In fact, as you study other religions, you see those are the type of attributes that, that are attributed to the gods to cause people to fear. Attributes that revolve around wrath, that revolve around judgment, that revolve around that power. But when we come to the God of Scripture, that is to say the one true God, the attribute that God chooses to primarily associate himself with here in this text is the attribute of love. Which is to say that there is something about God's nature that makes this idea of love a necessary part of who he is. It is part of what, what defines the nature of God. Another way of thinking through that is to say that everything God does, every single activity of God from creation throughout all of eternity is done in love. Love for his own glory first and foremost, love for his people. It's done in love. Author and pastor Sam Storms describes this love of God as being a benevolent disposition or inclination of God that stirs him to bestow benefits upon those created in his image. It is this idea that, that drives God and his activities. 
And while that is true, that it's manifested in the way that he relates to us, we must also understand that this love has been true from eternity past. It, it did not simply come into being when we were created. God has always been love. Before the creation of man, that love was shared between God, between those Trinitarian relationships. We see Jesus himself speaking to this idea back in John 17. We'll read this prayer of Jesus to a bit more detail later on this morning. But hear these words of Jesus as he prays to the Father. In John 17, 24, he says, Father, I desire that they, that is, believers, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before any man walked the earth, before Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, God existed and that God was a God of love. A love that was uniquely shared between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. From the outset then, we understand that this is foundational picture of God. He's love. It's an amazing statement, and yet even as I make that statement, I quickly understand that we have to be careful of how we say this. Because this concept of love is so horribly defined by the world in which we live, isn't it? Love is so cheap in our world today, for it's nothing more than some fleeting feeling that people have. Love has been reduced to, to an emotional uh, response. Love's been reduced to a few romantic gestures that a, that a man shows to a woman or the woman shows to a man. You will hear people use love to excuse all sorts of clearly horrible actions. You'll hear people say things like, well, the heart wants what the heart wants, and they'll use that to justify acting selfishly. As, as a counselor, I've, I've heard husbands use that line to excuse adulterous relationships. And they'll say, well, I, I can't help what my heart loves. God is driving me to love this other person, therefore, it's out of my hands. And we live in a culture that, that largely celebrates that kind of love, or at least that idea of love. And so as we come to Scripture and we read a statement like this that tells us God is love, we must be careful to not associate it with what our world thinks is love today. For whatever the world around us says of love, that statement and its picture of love is always going to fall miserably short of what the biblical concept of love is. That is to say, it will fail miserably when compared with the infinite love that emanates from the very nature of God. And so in order to really understand this source of love, in order to really appreciate how beautiful this love is, we must try forward into verses 9 and 10 and see the historical revelation of that love. That is what this love of God has produced. And to that end, read along with me in verses 9 through 10 of 1 John 4. There, John describes this love and says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So as to make sure that his readers do not fail to appreciate the glory of this statement that says God is love, John reminds them of where that bar has been set. 
what that love has meant for them historically and for him personally. And as he speaks of this love of God, he, he really reminds us of two historical displays of the love of God, both encapsulated in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Those two displays can be related back to the ideas of the incarnation, that is God taking on flesh, the Son of God being born, and secondly, the atonement. We begin with the love of God as it is seen in the incarnation. Again, chapter 4, verse 9, he says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. Here, John speaks of the coming of Christ. And the key word that really focuses in on why this is so glorious is that word, only begotten. Your translation might say something like, God's one and only Son. And really, that, that really captures the beauty of the statement. The same language can, is used in the book of Hebrews to describe another famous account of a person's son being given. That secondary account is found in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, we see the story of Abraham being told to us. Many of you know this story, and you see it referenced in Hebrews chapter 9, or chapter 11 rather, verses 17 through 18. There we read these words about Abraham. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, it was to him who was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Here we see that famous Old Testament story in which Abraham is ordered by God to sacrifice the son that he'd waited so long to receive. If you've read that story, you understand why this is so significant. For Abraham was given this grand promise of God, that promise by which he, set, he was told that through him a great nation would be established. Through him his descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. This was a great promise, especially given to Abraham, who was already an old man, married to an older woman. This is a beautiful promise, but of course, key to the fulfillment of that promise was, well, at least one son. God, in his faithfulness, provided that one son. But then shortly after that birth, or at least still in the childhood of that son, we have that shocking command given to him, that command which was, sacrifice your child. Sacrifice that only begotten, that one and only chance you have to be made in a nation. Give that over. The significance of this command, of course, is wrapped up in that idea of this being his only son. For if this son dies, what happens to the promise? There's no plan B for Abraham. There's no plan B for, for that great nation of Israel. So if he loses this one son, if that plan does not work, well, then all hope is lost. Same type of picture then is painted in 1 John when we read that God loved us this much, that he sent his only son, his one and only son. Again, there's no plan B here. If Jesus fails in this incarnation, what would happen of all of God's promises that he's made through humanity? What would happen to those of us who desperately need new life, who need forgiveness of sins? What hope would we have if this one and only son failed? Well, despite that risk, Again, we see that God sends his son, send his, sent his Son into the world. And thus we have this glorious picture of the Incarnation. When the Almighty, the God of all creation, takes on flesh. And he is born. A helpless, vulnerable baby. He grows up in this dark and dangerous world. And he walks among his fallen creation. John wrote of this incarnation in his Gospel of John. 
When describing that incarnation, he wrote these famous words in John chapter 1, verse 14. When he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the mere act of sending his son, and the mere act of, of taking on flesh and being willing to walk amongst us, God is putting on display a level of love that is beyond anything we could ever possibly appreciate. For think of the humility in that. Think of the grace of God willing to simply be in the presence of us commoners. It's incredible. It's awe-inspiring, and, and frankly, that alone should be enough to amaze us, both believers and unbelievers. This is a beautiful picture. In fact, even in our culture today, we still hold a certain level of appreciation when people of, of high status walk amongst just common people, don't we? You see it in so many Americans' obsession with royalty overseas. And we're amazed when it turns out that they're just normal people. And we think, look at this. They're being interviewed with Oprah. How down to earth. And they're amazed by this activity, as if they have condescended from on high and blessed us with their divine love. Now, you see it in many other ways, too, of course. You see it every time a celebrity or an athlete uh, is willing to, to give of their time and their money, perhaps, to visit those in, in need. You've seen videos, if you're a sports fan, you've seen countless videos of athletes going to you know, a children's hospital and, and donating money and cheering kids up, and, and our, our culture rightly celebrates that. For that's an act of kindness for people who are otherwise very busy, people who have a great deal of money who are willing to, to give up some of that time to sacrifice for those in need. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Well, if we can appreciate that, we can appreciate some celebrity going to a children's hospital, how much more should we appreciate the idea of the God of all creation walking alongside his fallen people? Being willing to come and, and present the nature of God before watching humanity. How gloriously beautiful it is to see Jesus healing people who are sick, giving people food who are in need, doing all of these practical acts of service that he had no need to do himself. It was all grace. All mercy, it was all love. And in so doing... As Jesus takes on this flesh, he is displaying this love of God. He is doing that which shows just how loving God is of his people. And again, that picture alone should be enough to humble all of us. That alone is enough to, to cause us to marvel and thank God for his beauty and for his love. But of course, as we read the words of John, we understand that shockingly enough, that's the less impressive example of God's love. That's just the tip of the iceberg. For the far greater display of God's love is not in the incarnation, but it's found in the second example, the atonement. For John reminds us why Jesus had to come and what he came to accomplish by taking on the flesh. We see this second display in verse 10. There again we read, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In verse 9, that key phrase was only begotten. Here in verse 10, as we think about the atonement, the key phrase there is that propitiation. Or in some of your translations, it might say the atoning sacrifice. It was that atonement, it was that propitiation that, that was the cause for Jesus' arrival. 
That was always what Jesus came to accomplish. And it's amazing. Yet oftentimes for many of us today, I think our awe, our amazement is lost because we don't use words like propitiation, do we? At least I don't. Frankly, I'd find it weird if you used words like this on a regular basis, right? It doesn't make it into our daily vocabulary. But if you understand the world in which John is taking this language from, if you understand that biblical meaning of propitiation of atonement, you understand again how shockingly amazing the love of God is. For when John speaks of propitiation as he does here in chapter 4 as well as in chapter 2, verse 2, John is borrowing phrases from the Old Testament world, from the world of sacrifices. And indeed, as you read through books like Leviticus, you see many commands given that revolve around this, this need of atonement, this need to be cleansed of your impurities, of your sin. Throughout books and passages like Leviticus chapter 25, verse 9, God takes great effort in showing his people what needed to be done for them to be given atonement. They had to take all sorts of steps and make sure that all sorts of um, boxes were checked. But the primary need for that atonement was always blood. Always a sacrifice. For them to be cleansed of sin, for them to be remaining in the presence of God, remaining at their home, they needed something else to be killed on their behalf. And so if you live through those Old Testament days... You are given constantly a visible reminder both of God's love and both of the tragedy of your sin. For you are regularly seeing blood being spilled because of you. You are regularly seeing these sacrifices brought up because of your sin. Because you did not deserve to be in the presence of God. You needed the death of something else to stand in that way. And so time and time again, you were reminded of the language of Hebrews 9.22, which tells us without the shedding of that blood, there's, there's no remission, there's no purity. Without that atoning sacrifice, we are cut off from the love of God. And after generation, after generation, after generation of those sacrifices, after so many hundreds of years of atonement being attached entirely to a sacrificial animal, you come again to the Gospel of John and what do you find from the words and the mouth of John the Baptist? Well, according to John chapter 1, verse 29, you find these words. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the final sacrifice for atonement. Behold the propitiation for your sins. It's an incredible statement to make about a, a man. It's even more incredible when you understand that man is God in the flesh. That it was God who died for his creation. And yet it is exactly what the Old Testament prophets promised. If we read in passages like Isaiah, Isaiah 53 that speaks of the fact that it is by his stripes, by his wounds that we are healed in that same passage, we read of how God chose him to be the lamb sacrificed on our behalf. We see the fulfillment of this again when we come to the Gospel of John and ultimately when Jesus himself is lifted up on a cross. That symbol of, of torture. That symbol that was supposed to represent the power of Rome to defeat anyone. To put down anyone that would question their authority. That symbol is turned upside down. And instead of being used to, to bring glory to Rome, it's shown to, 
to be ultimately the symbol of love. You can imagine the, the shock among Roman faces if they could come today and see people wearing little crosses as jewelry around their neck. It's an utterly bizarre thing to do to them in light of the fact that what the cross represented. They saw it as torture. They saw it as death. We rightly see it now as love on full display. That's an amazing display of love. And it's hard to imagine how you could possibly add any detail to that that would make it even more incredible. And yet John somehow does this. For we cannot understand and appreciate fully the love of God until we understand who that sacrifice again was given on behalf of. Look with me again to 1 John 4. John reminds us just how amazing this is. For in this is love, verse 10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the perpetuation of our sins. Paul, in the epistle of the Romans, speaks of the glory of this type of offering. And speaking of this idea of sacrifice in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oftentimes when we hear of this love story between God and his people, we like to imagine ourselves as as some secretly beautiful person. I, I can think of the countless number of movies that fit this cliche, right? Those movies and stories that are told of the popular guy who falls in love with the nerdy girl who, well, it turns out, is secretly beautiful. It just turns out when she takes her glasses off, wow, everyone loves her. And we like to believe that we're that girl in the love story. That if someone would just look at us carefully, that they would see that we are beautiful. That we are worth being loved. Well, I hate to break it to you if you feel like that's the love story that's been told to us in Scripture, but it's not. Believer, you are not some secretly beautiful girl standing in the corner of the gym waiting for someone to to ask you to dance. You're a rotting corpse in the ground. You are hateful towards God. You are a despicable creature outside of Christ. Paul makes this abundantly clear again in Romans chapter 3. Describing the nature of all of us outside of Christ in Romans 3 beginning in verse 10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is you. This is me outside of Christ. This is every single one of us. We're not worthy of being loved, believer. We are not secretly beautiful. We are not some dim light bulb that just needs a a new charge. We're shards of broken glass who do nothing but harm others. And yet, God chooses us. Not because we're lovely, but because God is love. And in his love, God condescends to us, God comes in the flesh, 
God lives in a filthy, sinful world full of sinful people that are cruel to him, that reject him, that mock him, that question his authority. And yet God faithfully and with joy looks to the cross so that God could be glorified and so that you and I can be saved. What love. And what is even more amazing is that as we're loved in this way and as we put our faith in Christ, God does not simply leave us where we are, but he brings us into that loving relationship that was once upon a time only shared between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, turn with me, if you will, back to John. In John 17, a passage I read earlier, I want you to turn there so you can see just how shocking this love of God is. John chapter 17, we find this glorious high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. Prayed on behalf of all believers. And in John chapter 17, we'll pick it up in verse 22, we see these glorious requests of Jesus that that culminate in this loving fellowship we then share with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit. There in John chapter 17, verse 22, we read, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see what Jesus gives us in his love? Jesus prays that we would be loved in the same way that he is loved by the Father. Jesus brings us into fellowship within the eternal trinity out of love. And in that love, therefore, we are not only restored, we are not only given new life, but we're brought into a relationship that would be impossible prior to the incarnation, prior to the atonement, prior to that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you understand that that is the love that is offered to you every second of every day? That that is how much God loves you despite your past sin, despite your sin from this morning, despite whatever sin you're going to commit this afternoon. He loves you. That love is unchanging. And if there's anything that could possibly convince us of that, it is this display. That propitiation, as John says, this, this is the definition of love. It's an incredible image. And the light that shines, that emanates from that picture of Jesus should cause us to marvel every second of our existence. And indeed, in all eternity, it is that light that we will marvel at. And I cannot wait to see that light in person. But believer, God does not save us and bring us into that fellowship with him and disconnect us from the world and tells us just to wait for that eternity. No, there is still an ongoing manifestation of this love, of this light that John says is still at work in us today. And it is this ongoing revelation and this end of love that we find back in 1 John chapter 4 in our final verses, verses 11 and 12. 
There we read, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, if you're like me, you feel like you understand everything John's saying in verses 7 through 11, right? For it seems like he's just kind of repeating himself. Okay, beloved, love one another, got it. In this love is displayed, got it. It's pretty good. And then he says, beloved, God's invisible. Wait, what? What? In what way is, is this idea of the invisibility of God in any way connected to anything John has been talking about? Well, I think if you look closely and stick with this, you see just how it's connected and you understand yet again how shocking the statement of John is. In order to see that, we have to understand again what it means when John says that no one has seen God at any time. If you're new to Scripture, this idea or this language might seem somewhat foreign to you, but if, if you read throughout all of Scripture, you actually see this invisibility of God as something that's spoken of frequently. We see many times in the Old Testament and New the fact that we cannot see the essence of God's nature. The Apostle Paul references the invisibility of God in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. But I think to really appreciate John's language here, it's important to see what John himself has written regarding the invisibility of God. And so to see that, turn back with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, picking up in a passage that we read earlier, in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, Again, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that is John the Baptist, testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. Here's the key verse. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see, biblically, we cannot see God's essence. We simply cannot see that. But God chooses to make himself visible through physical things. And so again, you think in part Old Testament manifestations. You see God being the, the, the pillar of fire. You see God in that glory cloud filling the temple. These are visible things that the people of God could see. But the most glorious example of them all, of course, is found here in John chapter 1, verse 18. For while we cannot behold the essence of the Father, we can see His Son. And so while God was invisible, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who we are told is the perfect image of God. He is fully God and fully man. And so as the Scottish theologian I.H. Marshall said, if the invisible God could be seen, he'd look like Jesus. And so God is invisible, John says. But God has sent his son Jesus so that we could behold Jesus. That we could look upon the loving face of Jesus. We could see the acts of Jesus. We can see the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. And as such, we, we see God. But what happens when Jesus is gone? I mean, Jesus ascended a long time ago, right? So it was all well and good for those few believers that saw Jesus back then. 
but John, what about us? What, what manifestation do we have of God's love today? What can we possibly see that can make that invisible God somehow more visible to us? Well, again, look with me at 1 John chapter 4. For in a very similar way that John spoke of that invisible God being man- made manifest, the visible Jesus Christ, we read this in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Language is tricky here, but I believe the picture here that John is painting is that the love of God, which is fully put on display in Christ, that love of Christ which brings us into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, when that love is enacted in us and as we actively love people around us, well then, that invisible God is made visible. We see daily that same love of God on display. Not simply on the cross, although that is the most glorious picture, but we see it in each other. We experience the love of God in proper fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This picture is almost impossible to believe, I think, for many of us. But this is the picture that John has been painting over and over in his epistle, is it not? If you recall, in the very beginning of John's epistle, in 1 John chapter 1, he speaks of the importance of fellowship, the importance of love. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, these things we write so that our joy may be complete. Again, it's that picture of perfection. The end goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ is bringing believers together in fellowship. In a somewhat similar way here in 1 John chapter 4, the end goal of God's love is not so that you have your own personal individual walk with Jesus and you live completely cut off from the world around you. No. The end goal is for you to be brought into the loving fellowship with the Father and Son and that you in turn join Jesus in his mission to shine that light of love to those around you. And as you do this, as you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, just as we discussed in great detail earlier in 1 John 3, that light of God's love emanates from you. You are a reflection. You are a picture of that same sacrificial love that Jesus Christ put on display on the cross. And it is in that that we see the end result of God's love. His glory made manifest in the world, not simply through His Son, but through broken vessels like you and I. What a picture. What a glorious honor and what a humbling and convicting word it is to all of us. For as Paul reminds us in the book of Philippians, God saved us from this dark world, not that we would be cut off from the darkness, but so that we would shine like stars in the night sky. So that we too might burn brightly with that love of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if this is true, if God is love, and he is, if his love has been put powerfully on display in Jesus Christ, and it has, well, how brightly are we burning daily for him? How clear is the glory of God emanating from us to the world around us? I fear for so many of us, We cut ourselves off from beholding that glorious light of Christ daily and we forget in turn how brightly we ought to shine. 
We cut ourselves off from fellowship with the brethren, forgetting that that is the means by which God gives us to grow. The love of God is glorious, but it is not simply past tense. It is presently at work in us, but it requires us to be at work with each other. And so as we consider all these things, consider how this applies to us. For unbelievers, first and foremost, please hear me when I say the calling of the Bible is not just love more. That's not it. Uh, Nor is the message, God is love, so do whatever you want. That's not it. Because the love of God is also a just love. The love of God is a holy love. The love of God is a pure love. And so while the love of God means you enjoy a rain shower occasionally or constantly this year, while it means you can enjoy the beauties of this life, the love of God for his people and the love of God for his own glory also means you ultimately will be cut off from his loving presence for all eternity in hell. But you don't have to be, unbeliever. The love of God is offered to you at this second It simply requires that you understand that you are broken. You're a sinner. You've fallen short of God's perfection. We all have. But in turn, as you understand that the calling of the gospel is that you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sin, and you place all your trust in that glorious love, the Savior who died for your sins, who rose again to give you life. Unbeliever, I beg you do that today. I beg that you might experience the love of God that is found only in the love of Jesus. As always, if you have any questions about that, please ask me. Please seek one of us out after. I would love nothing more than to talk about that with you today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I understand that loving those around us can be a difficult call at times. It can be, can't it? We live in a dark world. We live in a world full of broken and hurting people and so it's so much easier just to keep to ourselves but understand when we do this, our light grows dim and we fail to do that which God commands us to do. And so this morning, believer, I pray that you might perhaps for the first time in many days behold the radiance of God's love in his son, Jesus Christ. For that is where the bar is set. That is the standard of love. That God loved you, a broken sinner enough to take on flesh and to be crucified on your behalf. Behold the radiance of the love of Jesus. But as you do that, behold the radiance of God's love in our own church. Love one another. Serve one another. See God at work in your brothers' and sisters' lives. Serve them, get to know them better, take care of their needs, because as you do, you will not only behold the love of God more clearly, you will be reflecting the love of God to them, and thereby you will be executing the calling that's given to us as a church. I pray, Kate Bible Chapel, that when the community around us looks at us, this is what they see. Not just that we stand on the truth, although that is essential, but they might see us as a church that loves each other. Is that what Cape Girardeau sees? Is that what Jackson sees? That is what they must see when they look at us. So let us strive for that perfection. Let us strive for that glorious, radiant light. And as we do so, let us actively close that circuit. Let us draw from our own source of light. 
And let us strive daily to love those around us so that we too might shine like stars in this dark and decaying world. What a glorious honor and what a great reminder it is of the glorious light of God's kingdom that awaits us on the other side of eternity. Let me close this in prayer and we'll close with a song. Father in heaven, your love is truly awe-inspiring and beyond anything that any one of us could ever possibly deserve. God, I confess it is difficult for me to love actively. It's difficult for for me to love those who are unlike me, for those that I see as harsh or difficult. But God, the standard of love is not a standard of what is comfortable to me as a believer. The standard of love is the standard that you set for us in your son, Jesus Christ, who died for filthy sinners such as myself. And so I pray that as a body of believers, this is the attribute we strive to, to embrace more every day. You are love, God, and we know you, so might we reflect the same love daily. For those who are here who do not yet know you, God, I pray for their salvation. I pray they experience the love that is found in your son Jesus today, even at the second. God, break their heart of sin, open their eyes to the truth, cause them to see the beauty of your son. Cause them to behold the radiance of his love and bring them to salvation now. We love you, God, but we only love you because you first loved us, and we praise you for that. Might we live out your love on a daily basis now, God. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.